And while there are a lot of benefits to starting the month of Adar, uh, our comedy segments, they seep into our programming once Adar begins, and now we're on the second day already of Adar 1, the two-day Rosh Chodesh having been completed yesterday. Uh, Then, of course, uh, in general, uh, we talk about the joy, the gladness, the happiness, the great spirit that Adar brings. And, of course, our listeners feel that all the time. And then there's something else that happens during the month of Adar. We start to focus on one of the most amazing and incredible stories in Jewish history. And that is the story told in the book of Esther. And it all culminates about, I don't know, five and a half, six weeks from now with the big Purim celebration. And, of course, all of this is so positive until <laughs> until you meet my next guest. And he knows I'm joking around, but you'll get the point in a moment. Michael Eisenberg is here visiting us from Israel. He's an equal partner at Aleph, an early-stage venture capital fund with uh, with $330 million under management. Aleph focuses on serving Israeli entrepreneurs who want to build scalable global businesses. Since its founding in 2013, they've invested in more than 20 companies, including WeWork and Lemonade and Windward and Nexar. Michael has authored two books, Ben Baruch, an exposition on topics in the Jerusalem Talmud, Talmud Yerushalmi. Uh, that being uh, Mesechus Brachos. And the book that I want to discuss this morning, because as I said, it's now the month of Purim, or the two months of Purim, during these months of Adar. And the book is called The Vanishing Jew, a new exposition on the Book of Esther. Michael Eisenberg, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. How are you? Baruch Hashem. Great to see you. Great to have you here live in person. We have spoken about this book before on the air, but uh, never with you here in the studio. Uh, Amazon says the following. Bear with me for a moment. And you're right, by the way. It is available on Amazon right now for $9.90. I think a very so – you know something about investments. I think that's a very worthwhile investment. Investment in the Jewish future. To say the least. For <laughs> Jews, life can be comfortable in the diaspora. However, it comes with a big price, which is not always immediately apparent, but slowly eats at their Jewishness. In a highly textual, new, and old reading of the Bible's book of Esther, the author examines what happened to Mordechai and his people, a people who chose to stay in Shushan, Persia, the capital city of the first multicultural empire. By looking at the text, classic commentators, and historical writings, the author examines the Persian kingdom's recovery from its defeat by the Greeks and the parallel emigration of a handful of of its Jewish residents who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the new temple and restore their homeland, religion, and identity. Mordechai, meanwhile, had another plan. The Persian king Ahasuerus conducted a beauty contest to choose his new wife. Mordechai recognized his opportunity to get closer to the throne, etc., etc., etc. Many of us are very, very familiar with the story of Esther. Do we have any idea what percentage of the community actually went to the Holy Land as opposed to what percentage stayed in Persia? Actually, very similar to today, um, like in the first Aliyah of modern times, very, very few people went back with uh, Zerubbabel and Yoshua Kohen Agadol uh, in the early days. It's tens of thousands of people, not more than that. Uh, the book of Ezra tells us that it's tens of thousands of people. And am I right that, that may, it, may, it would make sense to say between 10 and 20 percent? Would that be? Would it's that really be? hard to know. Nobody has a correct accounting of how many Jews. I, I don't even think it's that large. It could be smaller than it could that. Be smaller than that. It's it's not too different from the last eighty or ninety years of, of Jewish history. Now, was the Holy Land, and I have to be careful how to say this, was the Holy Land unattractive at that point? Was it a because I would I would venture to say 
that if we're going to compare to today, we're dealing with an Israel and a, and a holy land and, and wonderful cities that are an attraction to a great degree to people from around the world who want to live in a wonderful place. In those days, what were they seeing when they looked toward what we know today as Israel? It's very important to put it in the historical context of when the story happens. Chazal say that it happens in the 70 years of uh, Golos Bavel, the Babylonian exile. Between the temples. Between the two temples. Right. Uh, historians, the Ibn Ezra, uh, Sefer Ezra, indicate that it happened afterwards, some 60, 70 years after. The building uh, of the second temple? After the return to Israel, oh. after the end of the after the end of the end exile. And right. In the book I write that it approximates that. But when they get back, the walls are destroyed. The marauders are attacking, similar to the Arabs of modern-day times. They need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It's dangerous. There isn't food. There isn't water. They need to kind of rebuild the, rebuild the land. You know, seven years thereafter, like seven years today, it's become a more attractive place for more people to go. Right. And then you have actually the blossoming of many of our traditions and cultures which happened, which happened during the Second Temple uh, period. And right. what's happening in Shushan during that time? In other words, what's the attraction to stay where they are? Yeah, in, in my reading of, of the story, there's a fundamental question one needs to answer, which is what is the first parak, the first chapter doing there, and the last parak, which are fundamentally economic chapters. There's a party in the first that describes this incredible wealth in the White House of Shushan, right? It's incredible wealth in, you know, Shushan, New York City of old. And in the last paragraph, we talk about new taxes, not 70%, I hope, but <laughs> new taxes that Mordechai levies uh, on the place. And this is an economic story that the economy was really good, so the Jews of Shushan stayed put for financial reasons. And I track through the book and through the 10 chapters of Esther has the, how the economy rises and people assimilate and the economy declines and anti-Semitism rises. And then you have the story of the Hatzalah, the salvation. Um, but then the economy goes good again. And uh, well, it's good for the Jews and because they can levy new taxes, et cetera, and they stay. Michael Eisenberg is here. Can you, can you give us uh, cite some examples of that? I, I'm trying to think where in the Megillah we are told or there's an allusion to the fact yeah. that, that the economy is going down or is suffering and therefore, and, and I should say, and at the same time, anti-Semitism or hatred promoted by Haman is going up. Yeah, it, the, the second parak is the key transitional chapter uh, in the book of Esther. What you see there is that Esther gets chosen as the queen, and the party, compared to the party in the first chapter, uh, goes down. And what happens in those intervening years, the book of Esther, by the way, takes place over about 13 years. We don't pay attention to it, but right. it takes place over a long period of time. So it's probably written as a retrospective. Um, and during that second chapter... Ahasuerus has to have a more Sanua modest party uh, for Esther because what happened was a war. The budget's smaller. The budget's smaller because there was a war. It's not different than what's gone on today. Right, of course. The big empire of the time got involved in wars with the Greeks, um, Battle of Salamis, etc. And the war goes in an incredible uh, uh, historical detail. Herodotus tells us that the amount of gold and silver missing from the, uh, from the king's uh, treasury after that was 9,970 silver bars. If that sounds familiar, it's va'aseret alafim kikar kesef, eshkol ha'idei, oseam lachal avil ginzeh that Haman promises to replenish the coffers, Ahasuerus' depleted coffers of the king. And immediately after that second chapter, gidal ha'melech ha'ashverosh ha'saman ben amdasa, because he's desperate for the money. He's desperate for the money. When economies go bad, anti-Semitism rises. It happens over and over. And, and over Haman again. says, I have the perfect solution for you because I know the source of the economic downfall, and that's the Jewish people. Yes, and maybe, you know, 
different before of different approaches was he going to get the did he have the 10,000 uh silver tal- talents or did he take it from the Jews or what was he doing with it you know maybe he took it in uh, protection or in larger taxes right. but that was a story and he tells a typical anti-semitic trope but the economy recovers and the Jews get back into power and then they didn't learn a lesson and they stayed put and, and assimilation i'll tell you an amazing story after i put one the, second one, yeah. one second the economy recovers give me the timeline how it coincides with the with the with the i guess we should say the discovery um, or the decision by Achashverosh to praise Mordechai. In other words, is it around that time that when he makes that decision after he's up all night and he can't sleep, is it is it around that time that that coincidentally, and I know you would say not coincidentally, but but that is when the economy starts to turn? No, it turns a bit later in in, in the story. So Mordechai's already hailed as a hero. Well, he's not really hailed as a hero. The, the turning point of the story, here's another thing we don't realize when we read the book. How long, or Book of Esther, how long was it between when the anti-Semitism started uh, and uh, and Haman is hanged. Anti-Semitism started is I assume when Haman first gave the decree. Yeah, and we know the Megillah tells us it's day after day. It's about four days. And it, it's four days. Yeah, it's about four chapters in four days, right? Because he's planning it for eleven months from now. Right. But then you know Mordechai calls to Esther and says, "You better go into the king and take care of this." Right. And she goes in one day and there's one party and then there's another party and the second party. Achashverosh orders Haman hanged. So less than a week. Anti-Semitism is, you know, or until Haman's hanged is four days in the story. The book takes place over 13 years. There's a larger story at work here that the author has decided to tell us, but he's told it in an incredibly charming and, and slightly deceptive manner. And is that a to, the, to our detriment, unfortunately, that the story of Esther is, uh, I don't even know, you say charming. There's probably a different way I would put it. It's, 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 it's satire. Yeah, it, it seems unre- the the unrealism of it unfortunately, uh, it dominates our view of it, I would say. You know, at the at the GA convention uh, this year in Israel, they wanted to talk about the relationship between Israel and diaspora jury in, in an honest uh, way. I, I don't think people actually have these honest conversations because it's difficult, right. and we should acknowledge it. It's, it's a difficult conversation. Um, but, I, you know, my view is that the person writing the book uh, is sitting in Israel. It's written beautiful Second Temple Hebrew, right, that wasn't the spoken language in Persia. Right. And he's writing a letter to his brothers in the diaspora and saying, hey, this country is growing. We're building an economy. Don't be comfortable. Come join us. We're going to build a great economy together that is for the support in the future of the Jewish but people. But that's not reflected in homeland. the story, though. It is. I think if you read it very carefully, as I did in the book. It's, Cite an example for me. It's, what, what's not reflected? That attitude. Where, where in that letter, where in that Megillah, I would guess, right? Yeah, is, is is somebody conveying? Hey guys, hey my my. Hey, you hey your name is Mordechai. You know, I hope I can say this on air, but sure. you know, at calling somebody Mordechai is the equivalent of calling them Jesus, right? Because Mordechai is named for the Babylonian Babylonian Persian god Marduk, and Esther is named for the Persian Babylonian goddess Ashtar. Wow! Right? It's like Christina, right, or Mary, and. Um, that's the language used in, in the Megillah. And even Chazal point out that uh, there was tremendous assimilation taking place at the party in Ahasuerus' castle in, in Shushan. I think, you know, the important thing to recognize is we're at the second time in history where uh, we have an emergent Jewish state and a strong diaspora uh, community. Never between Purim and today. Never between Purim and today. That story yeah. is the... Well, the second temple, period. Right, that's right. the prototype for yes, us. Yes, that is the prototype. Ezra goes back. If we, were living, if we were living 100 years ago, you may not have written this book. You couldn't. 
You couldn't because you wouldn't have understood it. Yeah, you couldn't understand the dynamic. And the this is this is exactly the same thing. Purim took place at the same point that we are in the modern state of Israel, roughly a hundred years after the first settlers went back to Eretz Yisrael. You know, worked their tails off, got mud underneath their fingernails, um, built tilled the land, built the walls, set up a security system. It's right there in Sefer Ezra and Nehemiah. It's right there. You can read it. We don't get that far in the Tanakh, generally, but it's right there. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Although somebody told me the other day that he actually teaches uh, in, in a in a school where he makes sure to teach uh, Ezra to the students. They're actually the most important books for modern times, but we don't get there. And there's a lot of Aramaic in the middle. So we and if you read Ezra, you will see exactly what we're going through today. Exactly. Again, well, the percentage of Jews, the attitude toward going to Israel, the lack of desire of Jews to leave the diaspora, et cetera. Here's an amazing thing. After I wrote the book, I got a call from David Bloomberg, who is the chairman of Israel's National Library, who I know for a bunch of years. He comes and says, Michael, come see me. So I go to see him. He sits me down. He has a very serious look on his face. And he said, uh, I read in Hebrew, he said, I read your book. I said, oh, thank you. What would you think? He said, you missed out on a very important detail. I said, what's that? He said, between 1880 and 1910. I didn't know this, and I haven't checked it, but I think it's pretty searched. I've told it to enough people. Um, Three million Jews left the Ukraine and Poland right. and came to the United States. Yeah. He said, if you just multiply population growth in the United States or in the world during that time period, there should be somewhere between 13 and 15 million Jews in the United States. Right. And there's six million, and there was post World War One immigration and post World War Two immigration, and there's been zero anti-Semitism basically. Where did all those Jews go? And the answer is they assimilated into Persia, like the Purim story, like the Purim story. You know, modern day Persia. And you know, we talk a lot about anti-Semitism; it gets a lot of headlines. But the biggest threat to Jewishness is assimilation. If um, if the majority of Jews in the diaspora would have moved to Israel over the last seventy years, let's say, would you have written this book? Was this book written because of the mission of convincing people in diaspora? you gotta, you got to see what this historic story tells us. But the, the book was written because I've been a Balkore since my bar mitzvah, and I've been reading Esther since my bar mitzvah, and I couldn't make sense of the story. I looked at all these people who were happy, and it didn't feel like it Why had a happy end. Why it so simple to us? It didn't feel like a happy end to me, and I, you know, it, it bothered me. And then in my early 20s, the parish cooked up in my head, and I didn't have the gumption to to go write it, basically. And when 2008 happened and the economy started to crash, I began to see the economic cycles uh, of the Megillah more clearly, and it became more urgent to me. And you look at what's going on right now, and uh, I just felt I had to write it. It was, it was and it just came out. I, I literally sat down and wrote the book in months. It was, uh, it was cooked up. I had the whole parish. It's, it's, it's a linear translation or linear interpretation of the book. It's every pusik I go through. All right. Um, and the story just called out. I was just... 2008 was a dramatic moment in world history, in my view, and in, in economic history. And we tend to forget those things pretty quickly, so it, it just came out. The Vanishing Jew is the name of the book. The Vanishing Jew, check it out. Michael Eisenberg is here. Um, and you know my wife. She thinks I see everything through economic lenses, so, <laughs> which is true. And I think but the, I the think economy it, makes the world go round. It does. I, but I'm under the impression yeah. that you see things through an Aliyah lens. In other words, you're, you're in Israel— Obviously, having fulfilled your own personal, you know, I grew dream. up uptown up here, right? Correct. Yeah. You grew up on this island. <laughs> yeah, I grew up on this island. And nonetheless, you're living in Israel, and your family living in Israel. I'm sure members of your family have been in the IDF, correct? I, mean, I have children there. Children, excuse me, children in the IDF. God bless you, and God bless them. Um, and I think that this book is more of a warning, uh, more than the analysis economically. It's more. That's why I said, if most Jews would have moved in the last seventy years, would you have bothered writing it? Because I don't. I don't think you're nearly as 
Um, I don't think you nearly feel the urgency of telling the economic story as much as you feel the urgency to convince people like me, hey, do you realize you sitting in Persia, New York, do you realize it's time to get to Israel? And I called the book a wake-up call from the book of Esther. And um, it it was actually, I can candidly say it was driven, the perush was driven through an economic analysis of the words in the Megillah, why the word yakar repeats itself. What does it mean? that we all interpret as, you know, Mordechai, Shrein, Chai, Vekayim, but the phrase is borrowed from Esav. It's borrowed from Esav when, you know, right. you know, when, when he's upset at Yitzchak. So, um, but yes, uh, I think we are an important moment in history, and I don't want to say this any differently, but the future of the Jewish people is not in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or Sao Paulo or Buenos Aires or London. It's in Israel. And, you know, my desire to move to Israel, which I wanted to be where... The future is, you know, my investment business that I have is I invest in technology, which right. is I'm trying to invest in the future. And I like to think about the future of our children, please God, and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Uh, where is the best place for them to be and to express their Jewishness so holy and, and, to, and to keep the Jewish people alive and not assimilate? Look what's going on. Yeah, but you and, also have a fear that your brothers and sisters, people like myself, um, are going to be in a very precarious situation if they stay here. Um, you're, you're worried about the safety of, of your brothers and sisters. I'm here. worried about the, the identity first, right? right? It, the book's about that assimilation is a greater threat than anti-Semitism. Well, the anti-Semitism is... Right. is so you're worried about the future about. of the Jewish people. Really, the future of Jewishness is, and the future of the right. Jewish people. But anti-Semitism comes when economies go down. If you look at a lot of what's going on in politics today and in the, in the rise of anti-Semitism, it's been well reported by the ADL. Um, you see that in parts of, of, of the country where there's economic hurt, and there is economic hurt, in the epilogue to the English version of the book, I talk through the economic cycles here and the rise in anti-Semitism. It's not in the Hebrew book. Um, bad economies bring anti-Semitism. It just, it just does. It happens plus, over and over plus, and over again. Plus, as you're sitting a mile away from it, uh, there's an impression that the greatest um, centers of wealth in this country uh, are dominated by Jewish people. You know, I don't. I don't think it's appropriate to talk like that. There's a lot of talk of that right, by others. I'm saying, yeah. But you know, I think uh, you know, people work, they succeed, um, they're blessed by God. Whatever it is, you know, right. But in a capitalist le- society, they are entitled to do that. And they give lots of charity. But even if it's legit, you still have plenty of people who are looking and saying, you know. This is a good excuse to be anti-Semitic. This is a good excuse to hate Jews. There is no good excuse to be anti-Semitic. Right. There's no good excuse to be a racist. There's no good excuse to be divisive. But for the anti-Semite, they're very creative. The fact that people choose to express their creativity and get out their inner demons in the way they do, that's their own. But I don't think we should engage in that. I think we should reject any notions of of, of racism and anti-Semitism. And that's not a politically correct statement. That's just, that's what God asked us to do. Right, so why God chose the Jewish people. But don't, but don't you agree that the anti-Semitism you're describing is also unfair or, or made up to a degree? No hate is fair. No hate is fair. I mean, you, you, you are here acknowledging... That Anti-Semitism he, is not right and not fair. Right, correct. Yeah. But you're here acknowledging that when the economy goes bad, you're going to get negative reaction from a lot of people that and hatred over, toward Jews. Over and over so again I'm, in history. So I'm, so I'm simply adding the point that people not only hate Jews for that reason, they also hate Jews for impressions that they're under, that they that may be false or may people be true. People tell themselves all sorts of stories, you know, to, to explain 
to explain uh, why, away their anti-Semitism. Yeah, why bad right. things happen. But you know, I, I think engaging in those stories actually gives them credence, and right. I don't want to do that. How good is it uh, to invest in Israel economically right now? And, and are you shocked by what's happened over the last few years? So I think it's nothing short of a miracle. That's the first thing. A real nace. Yeah. And you're talking about God here. You're talking about God. Yeah, God I, intervening. I, I tend to believe that, that God that's the only helps who those miracles. who help themselves, right? Good and, point. Uh, Put in the work, and he'll be there for yeah, you. Yeah, you know, work hard, and God turns up. And right. um, the, you know, part of the, the talk in the book is we must create. I, I moved to Israel. You know the story. You've heard it from me a bunch of times. But uh, Rav Amital Zichron of the was the Rosh Hashiva of the Gush, uh, challenged me when I was 19. He said, make Aliyah, move to Israel, and create 10,000 honorable jobs because right. people need to earn an honest and decent living. Right. I think that's true. If we create a great economy that attracts people, People will come. I've done three speeches over the last three nights about Israel's economy. You know, people talking to me about moving there and getting jobs. Here, catch this. In the high-tech economy, we've reached salary parity with the United States. Wow. That wasn't true 10 years ago. And I'm a big believer in growth trends. And um, if you look at the growth of, of average income in Israel, it far eclipses the United States. Not at the high ends. Right. But if you look at average income Across growth, the board. The rate of growth far increases, you know, far eclipses the United States, and I think those trends compound on themselves. You know, we got through 2008 very good, uh, very well, on a comparative basis to the rest of the world, and we have this innovation economy that keeps growing. We need more engineers. Israel short 15,000 engineers. We need more people who speak a great English and can write and produce content and do online marketing and a million things. And we have to keep this economic miracle going. It's only 300,000 people out of a country. Are you a, are you approached by people in the Far East? To invest in Israel because we hear yes. about China being at the step of Israel and at the and at the door of the prime minister. Frankly, very often, are you approached by people from that area? Yes, of the world? you know, if you go to the Sheridan in Tel Aviv, you can get a Chinese breakfast. These Is that days. true? Yeah, <laughs> because and so you many... and you have meetings there. I don't, um, <laughs> but the uh... but you will meet with people from China. <laughs> I do meet with people from the Far East. In, in the last month, I've had people from China, Japan, India, and I'm told someone's coming to see me from Vietnam. Can I assume they all speak English? They all speak English, although I speak about 50 words in Japanese. That's funny. And, <laughs> and I know we only have two minutes left, but I just have to ask you because you're here. Are you shocked by the success of certain companies? WeWorks, for instance. You know, we, we observe as regular people you know, the system and how it works and, and why would it work. Did, did it surprise you that it would become a big hit? You know, I lose money on 50% of my investments, so I'm always surprised when these things work as well as they do. You know? So people shouldn't think you're always batting 1,000. No, I'm definitely not batting 1,000. Um, you know. Lemonade, we took a binary right. bet on starting an insurance company, started in Tel right. Aviv in New York. You can imagine you're selling insurance. We have 400 plus thousand customers across the United States. The business started in Tel Aviv in New York. Selling insurance. No one ever thought of that. Right. You know, Who wouldn't do it without a face-to-face -face encounter? Right? Exactly. Who wouldn't do it without a face-to-face -face encounter? But in this world that's so globally connected today, and you can influence people online, you can get people to convert and buy insurance online, you can build global companies from Tel Aviv. We're launching in Germany in the next month. It's unbelievable. Wow. You know, um, all from... Tel Aviv in New York. It's unbelievable. unbelievable. Uber surprise you? Because uh, I, never, I never thought people would want to go into someone else's car. So. Yes, so my former firm when I was there, we invested in Uber. So the success doesn't su surprise me at Uber. And because, early on when you say invested? Yeah, because because the taxi industry is so miserable ah, that it, that an it needed disruption. To a really bad By the way, the insurance right. industry is miserable. It's the most right. hated So you take advantage of that by creating a much better model. We can and create more... delightful experiences right. for people That's using what it's all about. Phone and you know, attract customers that way. And I want to say something. You know, Israel is, observe a fascinating thing. We work as like a capitalist kibbutz, right? What Israel is, you know, Fauda has become this incredibly right. popular show on Netflix. What Israel started to do is actually export culture. Israeli food is known over here. It's not kosher, but right. it's an incredibly popular but the name restaurant. is here, right. 
Israeli culture has become exportable. We're not just exporting Jaffa oranges anymore, but it's this culture. It's this... The um, chefs, the movies, the TV shows, everything. Yeah, and I think it's more than that. It's even the esprit de corps that you develop in the army. Right. It's this teamwork. It's We can do this. That's an amazing thing. You probably saw it, but you know, Netanyahu sent off a, a group of what's called Chesh Chesh Chesh, the 669, the search and rescue unit, to Brazil. Right. I don't know if you know this, but people I know who are decamillionaires dropped everything they had and in two hours turned up at the airport to fly to Brazil to save other people. 200 people from 669, from Chesh Chesh Chesh, turned up to do that. People made it successful in high-tech and a million other things. They dropped everything because they had this esprit de corps. And that is, it's magic. It's really magic. Unbelievable. You know, I see what my kids are going through in the Army. I'm, I'm envious. I've so you I'm get envious. to see this up close and personal, and you're recommending. I encourage you to as well. That everybody should come and see it up close and Don't personal. Don't wait. we got a shrinking population in the United States. We can make a giant economic miracle happen in Israel. It's already happening. You just got to jump on. It's not the hard work of Ben-Gurion and all the people who came 80, 90 years ago. You've, you've you can get Heinz ketchup. You know, just you've blazed the trail already. Uh, not me. People that, far before me have blazed it. Now we just have to follow. It's called the Vanishing Jew. Wake up call from the Book of Esther. Michael Eisenberg. Check it out. Buy it. Everybody will be inspired during these months of Adar. Israel and Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard. On listeners sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. 